As we go into this chapter, as we talk about living happy, what I want you to, I want you to picture something totally different as we'll take a little scenic route to get back. So it's almost that time of year, you know, that, that month where 64 athletic teams are invited into a little tournament and then they compete as it dwindles down to eight and then a final four and then the championship game. Monday night where this basketball world and really lots of people, because we all get in these pools at work, sit down to watch this game. And, and I think maybe they call it March Madness because there's always some 19 or 20 year old kid who's at the free throw line with less than two seconds left. And it's the game on the line. And so you watch the sweat like dripping off of this kid And you see him at the line as his worry goes across his face. And he knows that if he makes these two shots, he will be the hero. He will get his name in lights. Um, It could make YouTube history, let alone people talking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Dribbles, spins, catches the ball, and you're pretty sure you notice his left leg completely twitching. Because the other thing is he knows if he misses that it's game over in a long ride home. He's not the big man on campus, he's the big goat on campus. The sportscasters will be ripping him for weeks. He'll probably be in therapy in 20 years going, oh, it all came back to that one night. And these are the moments that we live for. These moments where we watch someone where we hear the fans shouting and they're waving their towels, knowing it's all going to come down to this. And I was watching this a few years ago, and of course it happens on a Monday night, and wouldn't you know, one of my kids needs something, and they're yelling daddy because they almost always yell mommy, and I'm like, I want to watch. And of course the other team has, you know, given a timeout so that the kid gets really scared, and so they go to commercial, and so... I go and do the really loving dad thing and leave the room and go attend to their needs. And when I come back, I've missed the free throws. But I see this kid on top of someone's shoulders, hands in the air, huge grin all the way across his face. And we know that he's won. I would say that these are the moments that as a society, we revel in. We love to put it all on the line and know that our efforts are what make the difference. That if we can achieve, if we can do, win, lose, pass, fail, if we just get it all up to what I do, I will feel good or I will at least know. Philip Yancey calls this the world of ungrace and our world runs on the fuel of ungrace. See, ungrace is this thing that we live in. Ungrace is this feeling that I believe each of us have every day that we have to do something in order to be accepted. Ungrace is when one of Jesus' closest followers gets so ticked off because of one of his other closest followers, this one just happens to be female, takes an exotic bottle of perfume and breaks it open and pours it on Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her hair 
And he says, that's worth a year's worth of wages that could have been sold and given to the poor. That's ungrace. Ungrace is Jesus standing up the first time that he goes out to do ministry in his hometown synagogue. And he says, he reads from the book of Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops because ungrace says, wait a second, Isaiah 61 has another phrase to proclaim the vengeance of the Lord. Why did you leave that out? That's ungrace. Ungrace is Jesus, is how people responded to Jesus' story of these vineyard workers. Maybe it's a little bit like working at Amazon Fulfillment Center. Once there was an, a manager at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, and he needed workers because they were going through them quite fast. And so he found some the night before, early that morning, and he said, okay, I will pay you $150 for 12 hours of work. So you can do the math. It's a little over $12 an hour. Will you agree to do this backbreaking work for, for that? And they say, yes, I will. And so at 6 a.m., they start their shift and they start working. Well, the manager sees that he needs more help, so at 9 o'clock coffee break, he finds more workers, and he says, hey, why aren't you working? And they say, well, we didn't get hired. And he said, I will come. Why don't you come and work for me at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, work the rest of the day, and I will pay you whatever's right. So they come. At noon, at, at lunch break, he does the same thing. He finds some more workers. They come, and they start working. At 3 o'clock afternoon coffee break, he finds more workers. He finds them. Somehow, I don't know if it was on Monster.com or Craigslist, he finds people at 5 in the afternoon to work one hour of work. And everything is fine until the manager says to the foreman, why don't you go and collect our workers, and we'll pay them for the day. Start with the ones that started at five and then work your way back. And so he does. And he gives the people who started at five, one hour of work, $150. The same amount that he gave and promised the people at 6 a.m. He does it with the three o'clock workers, with the 12 o'clock workers, and with the nine o'clock workers. So by the time they get to the people that started at six o'clock, they are not happy. And they get there, and he hands them the $150, and they're like, what? In fact, we even have it on the screen. Why would you do that? These people who were hired that worked only one hour have made the same amount. You've made them equal to us, and we've borne the burden of the work. And the manager says, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work all day for $150? Is it my money to decide what to do with? Are you envious because I'm generous? Ungrace is being envious because someone else is generous. Have you ever noticed when somebody wins something, like especially kind of extraordinary, that we're like, oh yeah, good job. We're not really really willing to fully jump in and celebrate with someone when good fortune comes their way because there's just a little piece of us that wishes we got it. Ungrace is wanting everything to be fair. 
And we've been raised under this axiom of ungrace. We hear it in things like the early bird gets the worm and you get what you pay for and winning is everything. And there's no pain for no gain. In fact, people just get what they deserve. This is the world of ungrace. And it was true then and it's true today. And I think that's why Paul starts this little section. Paul's the writer to these people in Rome. They're trying to follow Jesus. Some of them have been raised in Jewish homes. Some of them have been raised in not Jewish homes. Some of them have church backgrounds. Some of them have no church background. And they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a world of ungrace because Rome was filled with ungrace. And so he says, therefore, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against everyone's account where there is no law. Nonetheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. This writer is trying to use a little bit of reasoning and a little bit of logic to help us understand what it means to have ungrace. And he starts all the way back at the beginning with someone named Adam, who really wasn't his name. But that's where ungrace begins. If you know the story, it's in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, a little bit of 1, but mostly 2 and 3, where God, in his goodness, creates this land and this place where humanity can live They can live in freedom, they can live in dependence on God, but yet this mature relationship as he does give them the ability to go away from him, they have everything they need in this place. And yet in that place, he does say, now there's this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will surely die. You can eat Anywhere else, every other tree is good to look at, great food, just that one. And Adam, he says, broke this command. There was one command. Maybe you've heard that we talked a few weeks ago about how the Pharisees loved laws. They had 613 of them. And Moses brought 10 commandments to them. Well, in Genesis, there was just one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't choose to rebel against God because you want to be like God. That's what he was saying. And Adam broke this. And the results of it, I believe, are entirely getting what he deserves. I think that's why we like this story. It makes sense. They broke the can, they leave the garden, there. That's how it works. Tick for tat. And yet, we miss all the moments of grace in the story. Over and over and over. The fact that they eat this, and they see that they're naked, they're ashamed, they're afraid, they hide, they blame each other, and what happens? God comes to pursue them. God asks them questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, because he wants to see if they know the answer. If they say, if they see how much he loves them, how he asks them asks them these things while they're still in the garden, not when they're kicked out. There are moments and moments of grace 
but Adam misses them. Adam, by the way, means a man in Hebrew, and it's woven into the story that it's not specifically this man and this woman. It's a man and a woman like any human. And I think what he's trying to say is just like sin came through Adam, sin comes through a man like it comes to any of us. Where God says, I'm inviting you into relationship with me to live in a mature, adult, but dependent relationship where you have to rely on me for certain things, and I'm inviting you into that, but you can choose to not do that. Because I think we choose to do that all the time. Because we're all a man or a woman. And humanity's curse what we get, what we deserve, is that we did choose to be independent of him, and so God gave us that, and now we are completely dependent on ourselves. He gives us the fruit of our labor, but not out of a curse, and not out of this ungrace, but so we could see that doing it on our own is incredibly, incredibly difficult. In fact, the Bible over and over describes it as sin. In verse 15, it says, the sin of one man, Adam brought death to many. Verse 16, Adam's sin led to condemnation. Verse 17, the sin of this one man, Adam caused death to rule over many. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, 18, and because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. He's saying, Adam isn't just this special person, he's just a person. And that person's choices affected the rest of us. Now we don't like to hear that. One of the great things about the Enlightenment, Renaissance, rationalistic um, thinking is is that we have raised the importance of the individual. From 1300 AD to 1800 AD, this type of thinking was very, was everywhere. There were a lot of good things about it, but one of the not so great things about it is this idea that we can live and breathe all by ourselves on our own, that we are autonomous individuals. Thomas Jefferson followed these ideals when he was in Europe and then brought them to the United States and actually put a little bit of them in our Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed with their, by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not bad, just isolated. That I can do whatever I want to do. The results are up to me. My choices determine who I will be, what I will do, and how successful I will be. And that is the world of ungrace. So while the Bible doesn't deny our individual responsibility, there's this much stronger sense that what people do affects other people. That while we're individuals, we're not just autonomous. And we have many examples to see this. I believe the school shootings that we've seen in our nation, um, the terrorist attacks that have been all over the world, even how we agree or disagree with those in government or in our own families about life, about living in family relationships, about living in 
communal relationships, about how the government works. Even the way that we interact with each other over that affects more than just us. And so this is what the writer is trying to say about God bringing a condemnation and God bringing death through this one person. And if you remember that story in Genesis 3, you might say, well, they didn't actually die. They ate the fruit and they were still alive. So is God a liar? I used to think, like, that just doesn't make sense. And I was never in a faith community where we could question quite that much. But maybe God isn't a liar, and maybe we've misunderstood what death is. That death is way more than just stopping breathing and stopping living. That being separated from God is actually what death means. So when someone says they're a sinner, it's not saying they're a bad person or uh, make moralistic bad choices. It's simply saying they are separated from God. So if you are sitting here and you have been called a sinner and it has been used in a bad way, know that that God never intended it to be that way. That you can be wicked, or you can be anxious, or you can be happy, or you can be content, and you can still be a sinner because you can be separated from God. And when we're separated from God, we lose peace with God. We lose relationship with God. We have to do things on our own and think that we're going to make it on our own, think that everything's going to be okay and dependent on me. We're choosing the world of ungrace. And Paul says, this writer says, it doesn't have to be that way. If you've lived that way and you're wondering why you're not so happy, it's just because we choose the ungrace. Even when we're presented with an alternative, I think we resist it. Think about how Adam and Eve had no hostility, no fear, no barriers to approaching God before they ate this fruit. And yet, after they ate this fruit, story after story after story after story from the Bible is humanity is afraid to approach God. Humanity feels hostile towards God. Humanity feels shameful towards God. Humanity feels scared towards God. They don't want to come to him. It's an example of how we're separated. And yet peace with God becomes possible because God never stopped pursuing us. God made peace with us. That's what this writer is saying. That's why he's using all of this logic about Adam and how Adam infected us so he can turn around and say, but just like Adam infected us, just like one human affected us, the ultimate final human, Jesus Christ, he affected us too. His life and his death and his resurrection, that actually made a way for peace with God that we don't have to achieve on our own, that we can receive. And that's what he goes into when he says in Romans 5, 15, that the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift come through the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowing to many, nor can the gift be compared to the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses. 
and brought justification. For if by the trespasses of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more who received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. That is like a huge, huge salad bowl of words that I think we go, wow, not really sure what that means. The writer uses gift, free gift or grace eight times in the verses I just read. Eight times. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. That's grace. God and his justice is ruthlessly and and relentlessly pursuing a way to give us mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. The reason that we can live in ungrace is because we know we should get what we deserve. That makes sense to us. So we're completely baffled time after time when we don't get what we do deserve because God longs to show mercy. He can't just leave things though. His justice doesn't allow us to do wrong and go, oh, it's fine. But instead, what he does, instead of giving up on humanity, he gives humanity his son. And through the life and the sacrifice of Jesus, he gives us what we don't deserve. Peace with God is possible because God has made peace with you and me and everyone in the world if they would see it and receive it. Maybe Paul uses grace and free gift so many times because he's actually experienced it in his life. He knows what it's like to live ungrace. He's tried to keep the rules and kept them pretty well. He went after and tried to pursue Christians, prosecute them, maybe even actually approve their beatings, maybe even their deaths, and and God met him in the road and gave him grace. It's all he gives, it's all he sells because it's all he has. But when you receive it, when you see it, when you learn it, when you live it, when you believe it, you find true peace. You find a happiness that goes way, way beyond your circumstances. And it's what we're invited into. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. He unconditionally and magnificently loves us. And sometimes he even likes us. Sometimes he even delights over us. That's why we have peace with God. And if you're feeling a little guilty about it, maybe some of those stories I talked about at the beginning of how everyone else in the Bible ran after ungrace too can just make you go, okay, Yeah, everyone runs after ungrace, but it doesn't mean I have to. So how do you, how do you live it? How do you choose the grace instead of the ungrace? Well, first of all, it's seeing what he says earlier in the chapter in Romans 5. See, at just the right time, while there was nothing we could do, Christ died for us. 
He died for the ungodly. Very rarely, he says, will someone die for a good person, a righteous person, though someone might actually do that. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were enemies with God, enemies, he died for us. Remember, sinner, enemy, it's not a matter of being good or bad. It's not some spectrum of angel to animal. It's just a designation that says you're separate from God. I'm separate from God when I live in the world of ungrace. But when I say yes to Jesus and receive his grace, I get peace in return and I get joy in return and there is no separation. That's what he's saying. And that can reign in our life, that can rule in our life, that can transform our relationships. Maybe you've seen it happen. That's what Jesus did in the moments when he shares at the beginning of his ministry and says that God's favor has come on and the freedom to the captives and releasing the ones in prison and then he starts doing that. And then when Mary breaks open the this exotic perfume and, and wipes it on his feet and one disciple in particular is indignant, he fixes that problem too. And when Paul says about this, about this life of grace that increases even where sin increases, he says that life can be overcome just like Adam was overcome by Christ. By Christ's work, it goes greater and greater and greater. The math may not make sense, but it's the truth and it's what we're invited into. So I think how we do this in our life is by returning to this over and over. To return means that we recognize that we've been broken in relationship and we walk back. The Bible describes it as repenting, going this way, think about how we're thinking and turn and go this way. It's saying, this is the world of ungrace that I've been living in. I choose not to live in ungrace. Even though I don't really maybe even feel like I have the power to live in grace, I will say yes anyway. I will trust what Christ has done, ask his spirit to live in me and through me. And I will experience that. We return, we repent, and then we receive. As we live in this grace, God starts to fill us more and more. He says, to those who've been given, much, much more will be given. Sometimes it just takes a little yes to receive all of the power and the peace that we need. For us in our home, it starts by Sundays, praying, God, you've given us the seventh day, the Sabbath, to stop You've invited the first humans into relationship. I know sometimes my kids yawn and roll their eyes when I use that phrase, but you gave the first humans the first day of creation as rest. If they're created on day six, then they get to first full day, they get to live in enjoyment with God is rest, is delight, is stopping. There's no work that we have to do to make us love you. Every week we pray that. Because I have to be remembered too. Would you receive God's grace today? That as much fun as it is to watch a kid make or miss a game-winning point, 
that our life is not have to be our life does not have to be lived on our results. It can be lived in the results of Jesus. Do you pray with me? God, I thank you for these verses that sometimes seem like deep, deep logical comments, and yet, God, all of scripture you use, all of your story you use, and you say, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus. God, I pray for those that aren't sure if Jesus is Lord right now. I pray that they would stop and look and see what you've done and what you offer and they would say yes to you. Not by my results, not by my efforts, but by your efforts, Jesus, do I trust you. You are Lord, you are Savior, I need you. I choose to live a mature and interdependent relationship, God. Trust you for life. For some of us, we say yes to Jesus and we've been trying to live for him and in him, but if we're honest, we've chosen the world of ungrace time and time again. God, I pray that we would stop and that we would turn and that we would trust. That we'd receive your peace and we'd live in it. And through that peace, God, that we would share with others. In Jesus' name, amen.